Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. When will the pain in developing markets stop? Right now, we're looking at the MSCI Emerging Markets Currency Index dropping to a new low uh, since 2017 uh, in May as people start to think, uh, what's next? We've got India. We've got Indonesia. Will China go? Joining us now, Eric Fine, I'm very pleased to say, portfolio manager, uh, focusing on emerging markets, uh, particularly fixed income dear to my heart, at Vanek Global here with us in our 1130 studios. Eric, thank you so much for being here. In your quarter century of experience with developing markets from Morgan Stanley and at Vanek, what period are we in right now? What period is analogous to it in history? Sure. Well, first of all, we're in an experimental period, right? So quantitative easing is an experiment. Um, and so uh, um, referring back to history is tricky. But um, my short answer is it feels a lot like, a lot like 94, 97, um, that uh, there was a period of leverage, uh, that um, um, uh, an unwind or a tightening in policy began with the Fed. It began to have repercussions around the world. Some of them didn't seem major, uh, didn't seem that important at the time. Uh, Mexico or, uh, in the case of uh, 97, Thailand. Thailand's really not that important a place, right. and yet it cascaded and didn't stop until the Fed backed down. So if you see a cascading pain, I mean, are we a quarter of of the way through here, or are we three quarters of the way through? What do you think? Yeah, quarters. I'm not. You know, I think in, right now is, is is observing and storytelling time, right? I mean, I was a sell side economist, so I can get into numbers if you want to. So I'm more comfortable saying we're still in the first half of this. Okay. Um, okay. Um, and so, for example, in Turkey, um, after the big, it was about a month ago, the big eight percent, ten percent sell off in the lira, positioning into that was unchanged, right? So people hadn't really reacted to that. And there, and still to this day, I don't think a lot of volume has gone through the numbers on the screen on a name like Turkey. Maybe spot FX, but there's a lot of those interest rate levels you see, not a lot is transacting. So it looks like a thing, but um, it's a di- we're in, a, we're in a, a, a different world. So not a lot of people sold despite this, which is why I think the pressures are still there. You owned no Turkey. Correct. Correct. We, you know, I'm an old style guy. If I don't, if we don't like something, if our process tells us not to own it, we don't, we don't own it um, because we think the losses can be significant. When I ran research Morgan Stanley, Argentina was 20% of the hard currency index. Now that sounds crazy from today's perspective, but that was a fact. That's what, you know, the indices were small. It was a new thing. We, we thought it, they would default. That was interesting, but not a really unique view. A few other people thought, but we zero weighted it. That was very formative to me. If you think, th- if, we, if we don't like something and you're really faced with capital losses, we think the bias should be to really avoid it and not worry that it's a big part of an index. Okay, so if that is the case, I mean, the way that you're talking about, I'm old school that way. The one reason perhaps that you're saying that is because indexing has absolutely uh, exploded and a lot of people who've gotten into emerging markets have done so through ETF and other index strategies, and they own a lot of things that they may not believe in. How will that change the dynamic in this emerging markets sell-off? Yes, well, indexing has, first of all, it's given investors uh, uh, access to things, to products that they haven't had. And in general, average U.S. pension fund has 3% allocated to emerging markets bonds. If you look backwards, just the dollar index, you're supposed to have a lot more. 
So it served a real purpose. But I think in terms of market structure, what it will mean for specific countries like a Turkey is when things seem as if they've gone bad, but you look on the screen and it doesn't look that bad, don't think it's over. That's my main message. It's mm. not that they're bad. It's just that for specific countries, it can create an appearance that things have stabilized when they really haven't. And so in a country like Turkey, I think there's a real chance that we get to capital controls. If you get to capital controls, the numbers on the screens right now, which I'm saying should be uh, uh, doubted, um, um, all of a sudden become undoubted because there's essentially nothing on there. And you have to. So that's the real concern. It's not an overall process. They're providing real opportunities for people who couldn't access great things like in general, emerging market bonds have done well. Right. Um, it's that for specific countries, it can create complacency uh, 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 when when it's unwarranted. I think it's very much the case in Turkey. Interesting. So you do invest in emerging markets. So it yep. sounds like yep. you do have a somewhat negative view of the asset class that you focus on. Where are you positive? <laughs> sure. Well, so when I say that it's, uh, well, for a big part of the reason why I'm cautious right now is the names that I see adversity, where I'm expecting adversity, happen to be big names. So when people ask about, quote unquote, emerging markets, they're not asking me my, about my view on Mongolia or Armenia or Belarus or Argentina, or sometimes on Argentina. They're asking me about big names like Mexico. Well, they had an election. We think AMLO needs to be tested a new president. Um, uh, uh, so does that Tur mean... You're pro-Mexico uh, cautious. cautious We don't have Mexico. a lot of exposure. Okay. You're not, not looking to get exposure there. Um, um, Russia, economic policy is great, but sanctions risk is there. Uh, um, uh, Turkey, I've already explained our view on Turkey. Yeah. Those are big names. So to be, so that's once the spirit in which I'm answering it. So what are we, uh, what are we excited about? Um, Argentina, Argentina, government, Argentina, you could describe what's happening to emerging markets as a test. Some countries are passing, some countries are failing. Now, the test is not just one test. You take a few of them. But every single test, in my opinion, that Turkey has t taken in this, they failed. They are not looking like their, their yes. prospects are not looking good. Argentina, in our opinion, has passed all these tests. They floated the exchange rate. Not enough. But you know what? Just don't invest too much in the exchange rate if that's your concern, if you think it needs to go more. But they've tried to quasi-float the exchange rate. They've hiked interest rates to double the inflation rate. Turkey is contemplating hiking interest rates to the inflation rate, um, and they've invited the IMF, which means dollar funding yeah. is really just not the risk. So I'm not ad I'm not saying Argentina currency is out of the woods and all, but when you're under an IMF program and you're committed and you're reacting the right way, nine ten percent yields for government bonds in dollars is too high, and higher yeah. for provinces that haven't had a hit track record of defaulting is too high. So Argentina, we're very excited. What about, about hundred year Argentinian bonds? Uh, too much spread duration. You're not trading Argentina there. So as bullish as I am on Argentina, when you get into spread duration, you're trading a whole bunch of other things that are not the original okay. thing. Um, um, I'd also say Chinese property, right? People are worried. You know, it's, it's not this general EM thing. We have been, we have not avoided China because we thought there was going to be a disaster there. We avoided China. We didn't see value there. Now, due to these pressures, some of their property names, corporates, have uh, sh uh, are very yieldy now, and a lot of them have high cash to short-term liabilities. So that's an attractive sector where you might see negative news about. Right. Um, but we're excited by because they're responding positively. The government's responding positively and the companies have buffers, these high cash. So we're not afraid of risk. We're, we're, we're just saying that a lot of things that get associated with quote unquote emerging markets um, happen to be vulnerable. And uh, the fact that in the old days, under uh, not liking something meant not owning it. And these days, not liking it meant, well, I have to have some because it's a yield. We're in a QE right. environment um, means that there can be some complacency in certain names. So don't get comforted by, oh, gee, Turkey looks stable. I wouldn't get comforted by that.
Eric Fine, you'll have to come back. A pleasure mm-hmm. speaking with you. My pleasure. Thank Eric you. Eric Fine, a portfolio manager focusing on emerging markets fixed income strategy for Van Eck Global here in our 1130 studios. Fantastic insight at a time when a lot of people are trying to figure out just where we are in this emerging market sell-off. How pervasive will it be? How tied is it to the Federal Reserve? CBS shares down more than 3% today after Les Moonves, the longtime chief executive officer and kingpin of the media industry, was ousted after sexual harassment claims. Uh, what will be the future of this company? Who will be the leader to really take the place of Les Moonves? Joining us now, Porter Bibb, managing partner at MediaTech Capital Partners, also the first publisher of Rolling Stone magazine uh, in New York. Porter, thank you so much for being with us. So, you know, how big of a blow is this to CBS? Well, it's it's a very big blow to Les Moonves, but uh, it's very little to CBS in, in the bigger picture of things because uh, National Amusement uh, and the Redstone interest uh, control both Viacom and CBS and have indicated for several years that they want to sell both companies. Sherry Redstone obviously tried to put them together. Les Moonves fought that because she would not commit to have him run the combined companies, which interestingly, as as uh, a single entity, put back together the, the way they were before Sumner Redstone split them up eight years ago, um, they, they would be worth 20 to 30 percent more than they are worth individually as standalone. So really? she, was, she was on the right track. Well, because there's so much redundancy, duplication of, of efforts and, and initiatives and organizational structures. And, and what the, uh, CBS doesn't have, Viacom does. And what Viacom doesn't have, CBS does. Yeah. CBS has no real international presence. It has no real movie studio or very significant uh, motion picture library that Paramount Pictures of, in Viacom offers. Uh, CBS has the, the broadcast networks, the broadcast content and archives, and Les Moonves has been very effective moving the, the company into uh, over-the-top and, and streaming and CBS uh, All Access, CBS News, uh, has have been quite successful. Well, what I guess that, that I'm wondering, I'm looking at Viacom shares, and they're a little changed today after being down for the two sessions right. uh, prior, and CBS shares, as we said, are down more than 3%. What is the market missing that you're seeing with respect to the added value that these combined companies will have? Well, I, I think what what is happening today in the market is uh, shareholders are, are saying we're losing one of the best uh, and most effective uh, managers in the media business uh, ever. Les Moonves has done an incredible job in the 15 years since he's been uh, the, the senior executive at, at CBS. He's really uh, fought the, the, the transition and landscape uh, earthquakes that have been going on in legacy media companies. He's kept CBS on top of, of uh, all the broadcast networks for a long time. And they're saying without Les, uh, they don't know Joe Ianello, who's 
been Les's right-hand man for almost a decade. Um, they don't know what's going to happen to the company, and they're, they're not looking at it as a, an, a, a takeover target. Uh, that's what Sher- Sherry Redstone has had that in her mind for the last several years. She cleaned house at at, with Phil Doman and others uh, who left, um, put Bob Backish in, in charge and prepared for a takeover yeah. of the combined companies. Nobody's focusing on that right now because, uh, curiously, one of the, the board decisions that came out last night when they uh, decide, made the announcement about Les Moonvu's departure, they, they announced that Sherry Redstone has agreed to a two-year hiatus and won't push combining Viacom and CBS. I see. Uh, I don't know if that's enforceable. Uh, the the bottom line, the asterisk on that whole announcement was, but if anybody else wants to p- promote a combined Viacom CBS, you do that. There will be, there'll be no objection by <laughs> yeah. the board. Um, almost trying to say, please come in here and rescue me so that I can stay out of it right. and sort of avoid the the political fallout. I guess that I'm wondering when you talk about the vision of Les Moonves. What is the vision that is required from your perspective for CBS over the upcoming decade or so during an, a nearly unprecedented uh, shift, transformation of the entire media industry? Right. Well, there's one word that answers your question. And it's called scale. Uh, CBS and Viacom, neither of them individually or collectively combined, has the scale to compete with the, the tech giants with Amazon, with Google, with Facebook, with Microsoft, um, or or with Disney now, which is uh, with with their acquisition of 21st Century Fox's entertainment assets. They they're going after Sky, and they will end up getting Sky in in the UK. Um, they they're going to be a major streaming factor along with the tech giants and CBS and Viacom individually or collectively cannot compete in that market. Who is going to be in a position to take up Sherry Redstone's suggestion and uh, try to push for this merger sooner than later? Well, it's curious. Uh, Verizon has uh, already uh, articulated an interest in CBS. Uh, One of the board members right now, Bruce Gordon, is a former senior Verizon executive, and I'm sure he's talking to Verizon uh, assiduously and and figuring out whether or not this is the right time. Uh, Verizon claims that they're focused on developing 5G, the new um, streaming service that's going to revolutionize uh, wireless communications and the Internet, but they don't have any content. And their competition over at AT AT&T bought Time Warner and does have content. So I I think that Verizon is in first position to combine with CBS and or uh, Viacom. Porter Bibb, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Definitely important to follow what's happening with this media saga that has entered a new phase without Les Moonves. Apple shares down today for a fourth straight day, the biggest four-day slump since April. This comes after the company said that it would have to raise prices on certain products uh, in response to the additional tariffs that President Trump has proposed on Chinese goods. Joining us now, David Garrity, I'm very pleased to say, Chief Executive Officer of GVA Research. David, what do you take away from Apple's announcement uh, about having to raise prices on certain products? 
to me, what's most significant is that Apple did not, in those list of products, include the iPhone, hmm. which says, I mean, here's the company, the product, the iPhone, provides the bulk of the company's revenues and profits. They said it wasn't going to be impacted by tariffs, which to me, I read that as saying that they're going to eat the higher costs that the tariffs would impact, you know, the tariff effect would have on Apple in terms of its manufacturing. As you know, Apple is a global company, has substantial operations in China. The Trump administration coming out and levying 25% tariffs on almost all the imports uh, that are coming into the U.S. from China. This is an effect that you know manufacturers that use global supply chains like Apple can't offset overnight. And as a result, Apple is saying that with respect to the iPhone and the higher tariffs, they're going to eat the costs, which means that they won't pass through these costs to their consumers. However, in other cases where the company said in the case of iPods, in the case of accessories, prices will be going up. So, yeah, but you know, here's what I'm struggling with. I mean, iPods, who has an iPod these days, right? These are all sort of the peripheral products of Apple's. What does it say about their confidence levels that they is it perhaps they don't have the pricing power to to do that with the iphone or that that they uh say are feeling more vulnerable in a time of increasing competition with smartphones that they don't want to touch that well you are in a situation where in the smartphone market growth has essentially plateaued uh there is a battle for market share don't forget samsung is out there uh samsung itself with very large operations in korea not necessarily in china uh apple has to consider what's its competitive positioning and obviously iphone sales drive the sales of many other products for apple so for apple to say essentially look we're going to eat the costs on this so we can hold on to our market share this is what they're doing. I think the bigger picture, though, that we have to take away from looking at what Apple is saying and what Ford Motor Company are saying is that they have optimized their operations to operate in a global market. Imposing tariffs um, requires changes in supply chains that can't be made overnight. These require substantial capital investments, which are done over years. What it really means at the end of the day is that if prices are going up so much, these companies are going to limit what consumer choices. Look at what Ford Motor Company did in terms of saying, we're not selling passenger cars in the U.S. anymore. The costs are too high. Yeah. Tariffs are making it worse. Oracle and Hewlett Packard Enterprises in the comment period to President Trump about some of these tariffs said that if they go through, it would impede America's leadership when it comes to creating a 5G network. Do you think that's true? I would argue that Again, global supply chains matter. And in this case, we have components that are important for the adoption of things like 5G. 5G, as a wireless broadband protocol, arguably is going to usher in a new generation of services. If the U.S. wishes to fall further behind in terms of being technologically competitive, fine. Go ahead. Delay the implementation of 5G. We'll only all suffer so wait, as a result. So you don't think this is just an issue of the companies throwing threats out there in order to get their wish, which is to get these tariffs taken off the table? I don't believe the companies make idle threats. I mean, companies are talking about capital planning processes that, again, <clears throat> take years to implement. And for an administration to come out and expect that companies at the at the drop of a hat uh, are going to be able to turn around and reconfigure themselves, 
that's just blatantly unrealistic. So how much do you think that big tech in the U.S. would sell off if these tariffs go through as promised? Well, I mean, we're already looking at a situation where people are saying that Apple probably from about 200, 217 a share right now probably pulls back to maybe below $200 a share. Um, so you, you're probably looking at something in the order of maybe about a 10 to a 15% correction. Across potentially, the board. It, depending upon the company and depending upon how exposed they are relative to their supply chains in China. I have to wonder, are people going to start talking about peak tech, especially now if you look at, for example, Snap, one of the hottest IPOs of last year, uh, declining shares reaching a low. You smile a little bit because putting Apple and Snap in the same sentence is sort of a little bit ridiculous. But uh, their chief strategy officer is leaving, who really helped you know, create this company. Do you think that's significant or you think this is just a company that's sort of out there and I mean, Snap is a company that obviously Facebook wanted to emulate all their features. Uh, and I would argue that there is greater competition taking place there. But in terms of talking about peak tech, I mean, the fact that the stock market now, 10 years after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, is up 80% off its 2007 highs, a big portion of that has been due to tech. And to the extent, if we're calling peak tech, are we really calling peak stock market? Well... What's the answer? It's something that we're <laughs> going to have to contend with. And the extent that the administration decides to take on China and put the tech industry in the crosshairs certainly puts the stock market at risk. And Lord knows the president is someone who likes to trumpet the fact that there are new no, stock market fully highs. intended, as your eyes told me. Uh, so in other words, you do think that should these tariffs go through, if I'm reading through the, through the lines, if these tariffs go through, there's a good chance that tech will sell off in a meaningful way and lead to sort of the end of this equity rally. I mean, there are other data data points that are out there. Goldman Sachs last week come out and said that their bear market warning indicator is at the highest level we've seen since 1969. They said it may not necessarily lead to an immediate crash, but expect a flattening of returns from equities. Certainly, these tariffs are going to contribute to that. David Garrity. Always a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. David Garrity, Chief Executive of GVA Research. Depending on how you measure the world of cryptocurrencies, they have lost hundreds of billions of dollars of market value over the past six, seven, eight months. Joining us now to talk about this is Aaron Brown, columnist with Bloomberg Opinion, also former managing director and head of financial market research at AQR Capital Management. Aaron, I am so pleased you could join us uh, today. I would love to get your take on the sell-off that we've been seeing in cryptocurrencies. Do you think that this is sort of uh, marking the end of the fad of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, or is it just another hiccup uh, that it will that, that we'll see in, in the rearview mirror in a couple of years. Um, what's really puzzling about this sell-off is why it's a big news story, why we're even having this interview. Uh, crypto fell from an intraday high to an intraday low, 16% uh, last week. And the average it does in an average week is 14%. Uh, this is a security with a 6% daily standard deviation. So it's roughly six times as volatile as the S&P 500. And we wouldn't be talking about the S&P 500 going down 2 or 3% in a week as a falling off a cliff or as testing new lows. 
Uh, we're not testing new lows for the year. Uh, we had bigger sell-offs and lower prices every single month. Well, I'm sorry. We've had bigger sell-offs every single month this year, and we've had lower prices every year, every, every month since April. Um, I think this is a non-story. I think somehow uh, people who weren't paying a lot of attention to Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies uh, took a look and said, my gosh, this is volatile. It's a lot more volatile than the stock market. Uh, that's true. That's been true since they were introduced in 2009. You know, I, I think that you raise an interesting point, which is these are volatile. They will continue to be volatile. Uh, so why do we talk about the volatility? And I think that it comes as the Securities and Exchange Commission in particular goes after an increasing number of crypto companies. I want to just use a pretty broad term here, the latest being uh, that they uh, temporarily suspended trading in the Bitcoin Tracker 1 and Ether Tracker 1, these two cryptocurrencies, uh, on yesterday this was. So this, I think people are looking at perhaps regulators taking a stronger stance with this. What, what, I mean, what, what do you say about that? Yeah, I, th I think um, there, there were two. So there was that SEC. There was also an SEC shutting down uh, the Frost uh, penny stock uh, pump and dump. Neither of these actions have anything to do with cryptocurrencies, uh, other than or, or anything essential. The the penny stock was a classic penny stock pump and dump. It just happened that uh, it was run by some people who were strong Bitcoin bulls, and the two funds that were shut down uh, or suspended, they weren't shut down, uh, had nothing to do with the fact they had crypto. Uh, it had everything to do with the fact that their legal documentation conflicted with their offering documents, and the offering documents and legal documentation conflicted with what the brokers were representing them as. Uh, this was pure legal sloppiness on the part of the issuers. Uh, hopefully, it won't turn out to have been criminality, just sloppiness. And it would have been shut down if they had been holding gold or stocks or, or, or anything else. It was, it was a, a pure... In fact, what's amazing about that story is that these things traded since 2015 and got on the NASDAQ. Uh, without somebody actually reading and noticing these major discrepancies in the documentation. I guess that the other thing that sort of got my attention this morning and why I did sort of pay a little bit more notice to the sell-off was that the founder, co-founder of Ethereum, uh, Vitalik Buterin, was speaking with Bloomberg and said, you know, we may have seen the days of explosive growth in, in the blockchain industry. We may have seen those already. And going forward, this is going to be a much slower grind with a lot less hype. And, you know, how does that affect an industry that has been driven by hype? Um, okay, the industry is not driven by hype. I want to correct that. The actual code base and uh, and and and, uh, and data that are driving the blockchain that has been growing steadily in quality and quantity uh, by developers who are not looking at the daily price charts. It's true. 2017 was a year of hype, and we've had we had them before, also in 2012 and 2013. Um, and the hype was driven, in my opinion, primarily by the idea that institutional investors and retail investors were just waiting for some regulatory and infrastructure changes, and they would pour billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars into, into crypto. And that turned out not to be true. The legal barriers were uh, fixed, and the infrastructure was built, and uh, nobody came to put in any anywhere near that kind of money. But that has nothing to do with the long-term economic case for Bitcoin, the five, ten-year idea that cryptocurrencies are going to be a very important part of the economy to come. Um, the Ethereum comments that, that we're not going to see another 1,000% uh, increase, 
uh, that's you know not too unreasonable given <laughs> the, the size of the crypto market. Um, I think that's what if you're a bull, you're saying, okay, we got another thousand percent to go. We got another ten time increase, and that would bring crypto to sort of what seems like a reasonable uh, right. part of the economy on fundamental grounds. Um, so if you're hoping for ten thousand or a hundred thousand percent return, then, yeah. then, then that's probably out of the question. <laughs> but it always was. It was that's not right. New. Aaron Brown, I love having your real speak. Thank you so much for joining me today. Aaron Brown is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He's also a former managing director and head of financial market research at AQR Capital Management, helping to put the uh, Bitcoin sell-off into some perspective, also uh, bringing down a whole bunch of other crypto assets with it. Definitely a volatile asset class that continues to see uh, a lot of volatility. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.